if you're starting your first business, that is astronomically better for you. I've cost myself millions of dollars by not doing that. The single biggest mistake I made in my business career. Today on the show, I'm happy to have Shannon Robnett. He's the CEO of SRI. They're a ground-up multifamily and industrial developer that syndicates nationwide. And can you tell us the story of what you learned from doing everything wrong? The thing is, I've literally learned everything myself, and I've done about everything wrong you can do in every aspect of business. I've partnered with the wrong people, gotten projects that are too small. I've gotten projects that are too big. There's so many things that you learn by being actually boots on the ground and, and doing the deal that they don't teach you. They can't ever teach you. You can go to 100 boot camps and never learn the stuff that real world scenarios teach you. And after 27 years, trust me, Chad, the list is very, very long of all the things I've done wrong. Is there some lessons that really stand out in your mind? Some of the biggest lessons I have learned is trying to do it all, trying to be the guy that puts the deal together, trying to be the guy that raises the capital, trying to be the guy that builds the project. And as I've gotten older and figured that out, I've learned to really connect with specialists, people that are really good at their particular aspect of the deal and get people that you can trust, get people that you can work with and really build out a team because I was raised by a solopreneur. My dad did it all. And I've learned that you can't do that if you're going to do things at scale. So when you look for your specialists, are you looking to bring them in-house on staff or more of a consulting type capacity? I always look to bring them in-house because you always think, well, if they work for me, it will be cheaper. It will be less expensive. I have more access to them. But the reality is if you're working with a good person or a good outfit that does what they do well, they're going to earn your business every single day. There's going to be accountability on their part every single day that you really honestly can't get from your own team. There's going to be blind spots. There's going to be new things that come in the lending field. There's going to be new things, new rulings with the SEC on how syndications are done or all that kind of stuff. And if you're constantly trying to be all of those things and stay up to date on all that, you're causing yourself a whole lot more work than if you're working with people that have great track records, that have been in business for a while, that know what they're doing and know that they could lose your business with poor performance. So why do you choose to keep them in-house in that scenario? Uh, I don't anymore. Yeah, as I, <laughs> no, no, let's, let's be clear, Chad. I've really gotten to the point where we have a core function here. We find the deals, we underwrite the deals, we get with the architects, we get our plans drawn, we get ready to go. And then when we're ready to execute, we will go into that market and we will find the builder, the developer that is the specialist in what we need. We work with other capital raisers to work on their specialty. And we really have gotten to a point where that accountability has created so much more synergy. I've actually had deals brought to me by capital raisers because they need my experience. We've had deals brought to us by lenders that we wouldn't normally have used. All different kinds of things. And it's really kind of an abundance mentality that the more you give away, the more you have other people involved in your business that are reputable, that have been doing it a while, that have got the track record, that have got the integrity. You've got to match up on those things. But once you have that, you're really able to jump in and get granular very quickly with knowledgeable people that propels your business forward in ways that you didn't really think possible before you really got to work with them. For those that aren't familiar with your space, what does one of these deals look like? What are all the moving parts? 
you know, what, most of what we do is ground up. We do some acquisitions, but ground up is really our bread and butter. So we'll find a piece of property in a market we really like. The first thing starts with a good market. We don't just look at anything. We look to make sure that the market is needing what we want to build. We find the ground, we go through that entitlement process. We draw the plans in that mix. Once we found the ground, we're bringing on our property management team because we need accurate data. Most people that are buying an existing product, they have the data. They know what the rents are. They know what the vacancy rates are. They know all those things. We need somebody that's an expert in that market that can drill into that and say, hey, here's what you've got. Here's what it's going to take to get this done. Then with our rent prices, we can go backwards into, you know, this is how much I can spend if the rent is X. And we build in our profit margins, we build to a cap eight. So we're providing plenty of liquidity in our deals. We're providing plenty of upside opportunity. And then we begin to drill into those plans so that when we get done with the set of plans, we know where we're gonna be at price-wise. We're not drawing a set of plans and then going out and getting bids on it and realizing our plans are too expensive or, or whatever. We're making that a cohesive effort to get that done. And when we're finally done with that, then we actually build the project, tenetize the project. And usually at that point, we sell that project to another investor that's looking for it, those kinds of things. We don't do a lot of long-term holds. So our, our plays are 24 to 40 months. We've got great upside. We've, we've underwritten very, very conservatively. So that even market swings like we've had where we've returned to interest rates that are normal for the industry, we're not in a situation where we have to struggle with a, a sales price. What are some of the areas in the U.S. that you're currently happy with or looking at? Well, we love the Raleigh-Durham area, Boise, Idaho, where my offices are, has made the top 10 list for the last 10 years. We love Nashville, Tennessee, Houston for industrial, Dallas for multifamily. And we're looking at some of the other really strong, what I would call recession resistant markets, because that's kind of where we're headed. Phoenix, areas like that, that have really robust economies that people are flooding into for tax purposes, for regulatory purposes, for starting businesses, all those kinds of things. Because a high growth area is only, in my belief, going to be accelerated by any kind of coming recession. So to you, recession resistant means there's a lot of population inbound to an area. That's correct. Yeah. Yep. And we like to see lots of growth. I mean, California's got an outbound traffic right now. It's not a great place for investments, even though property values continue to rise. It's not a great place to invest because if the population is declining and businesses are leaving, that's never good for an economy. You look at somewhere like Raleigh-Durham, I uh, just did a webinar on what Raleigh-Durham was there last week. And that has got so many government incentives, so many local municipalities that are pro-business. They want to see you expand. There's a ton of research and development going on there. I mean, Duke University is spending $1.2 billion annually on R&D. That's going to attract the best and the brightest. Their per capita income is high, so we can raise rents. You want to see all those things. An area like Detroit, uh, it's stagnant. Rents are growing, but very slow compared to the rest of the nation. And then what are they providing on the job front? What are the incentives to move there? So when you contrast those, you can have a great deal in a mediocre market, but I'll take a mediocre deal in a great market any day because the market forces are gonna buoy your deal way more than anything you could possibly do on an individual deal level. How many of these deals do you like putting together in a given year? Seven to 10, we like to stay active. Has that slowed down based off the economic conditions or is it about the same? For a lot of people it has, but like I said, we underwrite conservatively. I've been doing this for 27 years. In that 27 years, I've had the kind of 
punch in the side of the face that a lot of people are getting right now because they didn't think interest rates were going to go back to 8%. I was raised on 9% interest rates. So this is normal to me. My underwriting does not look like a lot of people's underwriting because of how conservative it is. But I'm also factoring in market conditions because in the next 30 months, we've got a, a multifamily apartment complex is 200 units that we'll build over the next 30 months. And I have no idea what 30 months from now is going to look like. This whole COVID boom wasn't 30 months long, right? The whole up or the whole down on the interest rates and then the back up on the interest rates wasn't 30 months. So I've got that built in to the best degree that you can that allows us to be able to figure that out and move through that. Well, and this is probably you pull from those 27 years of mistakes and learnings. Yeah, this used to be supermodel quality, right? This is all that's left after taking shots to the face, right? But I mean, I've done deals where you go do a cash in refi. I didn't like that. I was scrambling. The, the bank was calling my note, but this was back in 2004. I mean, I did that when rates were going up then. I've done a lot of the things that people are experiencing now. And what I'm seeing is probably what I look like. The guy that's frozen in the middle of the roadway doesn't know what to do. We've already got that experience. We've made it through that several times. And we now know what that playbook looks like. And it's very easy for us to navigate that. So what are the difference between a cash in refi and some of these other vehicles? I mean, obviously a cash in refi. I mean, if somebody bought a deal 15 months ago, 18 months ago at a three and a half cap and they got 80% leverage and they didn't lock in their, they got a floating rate debt or a bridge debt of some sort because they were going to do a value add, all of those kinds of things. They may have executed on their business plan perfectly. They may have raised rents $300. They may have done all the things. The pool house looks great. The clubhouse looks awesome. They've got their occupancy to 97%. All of those things may very well be in place, but banks have looked at it and said, well, interest rates are up 4%. So now you're looking at an 8% loan on this deal and the debt service coverage ratio or the DSCR that everybody's hearing a lot about has changed so now the amount of money that you can borrow at eight percent is much lower than you could borrow at four percent just because of the interest payments so now dscr is governing a lot of this stuff and at the end of the day maybe they borrowed 40 million and now they're coming back to refinance it their business plan executed perfectly cap rates have risen all of these kinds of things and the bank is offering them 35 million so now they've got to come up with another five million dollars to even refinance their deal that can be very, very stressful because you have to talk with the other investors. You got to do a capital call. If they can't meet the need, you go back out and you go with another round of funding, which dilutes everybody. All of these things can be very, very painful. So you want to have that solution. You want to know that you've got enough. And when we fund our deals, we come in with 30, 35% capital. We're not taking it all the way to the limit that the bank will give us, which dilutes our returns a little bit, but I'd rather have a return of capital and profits than a cash call, right? Somebody calling up and saying, hey, you know what? We need more money on this deal. That's not the way you want to operate. But I've had to do it in the past in 2004. And this goes back to that conservative underwriting and the experience yeah. of having to do it. Yeah, because I didn't underwrite as conservatively as I do now because you know all the things that can happen, you know? So what would your advice be to people starting their first business now? If you're starting your first business, I would make sure that you are either mentoring with somebody in that exact business that is super, super successful, or you go to work for somebody that has that business for a year or two. I mean, if you think about it, Elon Musk says that anything you want to know in college is on the internet. You just need to watch YouTube. And he's not wrong. 
But if you want to know how to run a business and you want to know how a business operates, why wouldn't you hire on and get paid to learn by working with somebody in that business that is already successful to the degree that you could? And then you delay the start of your business by 12 months, but you increase the success opportunity and the ability for you to guarantee that as much as you can by five, six, seven times just by having that intimate experience of that business. Yeah, those 12 months end up being a lot of time savings and money savings in the long term. Well, and Chad, I mean, how old are you? 29. So if you're 29, your earning potential is 35 years. You got 36 years of earning potential. You're going to reduce that to 35 by waiting one year by working intimately in said business, right? You still have 30 years that that's going to magnify what you learned in that 12 months instead of doing what I did, where you took 20 years to learn all these lessons and I only have 20 years left of earning life. So when you look at that, if you can create a five or a 10% better, more efficient model, and you just improve that by five or 10% a year for 35 years and you give up one year to do that, that is astronomically better for you than if you were just to start out and learn all these lumps and take all these knocks yourself. Yeah, I'm the, the other side of this. I had my first business when I was 16, so I've taken the knocks and the bumps. Yeah, yeah. Made money, my, lost money. <laughs> yep, I had my first business at 13. I started my first, I want, I'll call it a real business where I had an LLC and everything at 19. I've never worked for anyone before in my life after I graduated high school. I did work at a movie theater for three months, but I've never had a job. And when I'm sitting here, I'm going to be 50 in August and I'm sitting here looking back on it and going the biggest, I think, I honestly believe the single biggest mistake I made in my business career was not working for somebody else that was super successful. Had I done that, I could have grown in their company. I could have been valuable to them. Not that I would have ever stayed there. I'm too much of an entrepreneur. But at the same time, I could have learned their systems. I could have learned their marketing. I could have learned their accounting. I could have learned a lot of things by being in that business to the point that when I stepped out on my own, I wasn't spending so much time doing all this setup myself. I could have said, hey, I'm just gonna set it up just like Jimmy did. And I could pull that in. And then in pulling that in, I would free up, I would say in the first year of a business, and you could probably agree with me, you probably spend 75% of the time on the business, in the business, doing the business, instead of out there getting your customers, building your product line, doing all those other kinds of things that if you have that, because you already know how to set it up, you're just copying somebody else, rip off and duplicate, man. Don't make it super hard on yourself. From there, man, you're putting all of that time and energy. Now you're down to 35% of working in your business and you've got another 35% to work on your business and grow it. Yeah, R&D is helpful. Rip off and duplicate. Exactly. I'm going to steal that from you, Chad. I'm going to rip <laughs> off and duplicate that phrase right here, right now. Yeah, and the power of mentorship as well. Like, as you were saying, Absolutely. It, it's, I've been lucky enough to have many mentors over my time. But without that, without people who have done it before, it's much harder to see what's coming and also set that path up. Yeah. Well, and I look back what I've seen in market cycles and bad times, and I look at the fact that I went through that by myself in a lot of cases. If I would have gone through that with a mentor, I would have gone faster. I would have gone better. It would have been less stressful. It would have been less costly. I would have come out the other side better. I would have been in a better place financially to take advantage of the new opportunities that always come after a bad time. And I've cost myself, literally, Chad, I've cost myself millions of dollars by not doing that. And so when I tell people, you know, exactly what you said, you couldn't be more adamant about it, that that is absolutely 100% true. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. So, Shannon, if one of our listeners wanted to get in touch with you or SRI to invest or just learn, how could they do so? The easiest way to do that, Chad, is just to go to our website. That's shannonrobnet.com. And they can go there. I've got a book list. You can see our projects. You can see what we're currently doing. You can actually even get to my calendar, set up a quick call if you want to chat with me. Love to just get in touch with people. All of our social media is there. So it's just shannonrobnet.com. Well, thank you, Shannon, for coming on the show. And thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Failing Success. Make sure to smash that subscribe button. I'm your host, Chad Kalecki with Cosmic Web Design and Development. And we'll see you next time.